0: Today's scripture reading comes from portions of First Corinthians chapter fifteen verses one through ten and forty-five through fifty-eight printed in page eight of our bulletins. Verse three. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Verse 48. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of our Lord.
1: On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why do we do that? It's because all of Christianity hangs on that truth, the reality of the resurrection. It's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says the resurrection is of first importance, meaning if the resurrection is real, you have to believe everything Jesus says. But if Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead, you shouldn't believe anything he says. Everything hangs on that one truth. And in this passage, we see three things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. It gives us a lasting faith. It gives us a lasting hope. It gives us a lasting power. Lasting faith, hope, power. First, The resurrection gives us a lasting faith. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul, really the earliest Christians, they were mainly Jewish. And so they originally wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed all of that. It transformed their worldview, transformed their lives. And so, Paul begins to make an appeal for the resurrection. And he does it in three ways. In verses 3 and 4, he argues logically. In verses 5 to 8, he argues legally And in verses 12 to 15, he argues with us personally. I'm going to go through this very quickly. First, he argues with us logically. Verses 3 to 4, he says, This is of first importance. Jesus died and even was buried. But really what he's saying is, but the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. How do you account for the empty tomb? The Greeks and the ancient Romans of their day, they were the most prominent irreligious worldview in society. They believed that the body was weak. They believed that the body was bad. And so death was really a liberation of the soul. The idea of a bodily resurrection wasn't even desirable. They didn't want that. They didn't like that. The Jews, they were the prominent religious worldview, the religious community of their day. They believed that the resurrection was something that only happened at the end of the world. And so if you went to an educated Jew, and you, went to an, and, and you asked him, why don't you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? He would respond like this. He would say, look around. You see death everywhere. You see disease everywhere. You see injustice and oppression everywhere. And none of this will be resolved until the end of the world. In both worldviews, whether you're irreligious or religious, in Paul's day, the bodily resurrection wasn't conceivable. It wasn't desirable. They weren't looking for it. The disciples, they couldn't have been hallucinating Because Jesus Christ appeared to them in groups. And people can't hallucinate the same thing in groups. They couldn't have been deceived. They couldn't have been lied to. Why? Because these people, they didn't want to believe this. They were skeptical of this. The first church was mainly ethnic Jews. And Christianity was ruining them. It was threatening their cultural livelihood. They had to be compelled to believe. You see that? Now, they couldn't have been lying themselves. A lot of people are unknowingly willing to die for a lie. But how many people are willing to die knowingly? And we're not just talking about death. We're talking about horrific, torturous deaths. So Paul makes a very logical case for the plausibility of the resurrection. But secondly, he makes a legal case for the resurrection. You have to know that what Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians, it was an epistle. What were the epistles? The epistles were official public documents. In ancient Roman times, Really, they gave birth to the Western legal system that we have today. There was a heavy reliance on public documents, public accounts, public testimonies. So Paul was literally putting his credibility and the credibility of hundreds of people on the line when he says in verse 5, Jesus appeared to Peter and the disciples. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 people, most of them who are still alive. What he's saying is, check the records, check the testimonies. Verse 7, he appeared to James and the apostles. Verse 8, he appeared to me. Paul wasn't a shabby, he wasn't shabby with credibility himself. He says, appear to me, himself. In other words, he's calling out individuals, small groups, large groups. They all saw Jesus. They all spoke to Jesus. They all ate with Jesus, touched Jesus. Very, very risky because it would have only taken one person to discount the account. It would have taken one person to discredit what Paul is saying. And yet, instead of Christianity being dismantled, the church grew. How do you account for the empty tomb? How do you account for the growth of the church, making it out of the first century? But lastly, Paul appeals to us personally. In verses 8 to 11, Paul refers to his own encounter with Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee which means he was a religious person in his day. He himself did not want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead to the degree that he had Christians murdered. He had them killed. Christianity was disturbing to him. It was ruining his life. He said, I didn't want Christianity, but I had to believe. The resurrection changed my life. And now he says in verse 9, I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve this. What do you learn from this? What do you learn? You never come to Jesus Christ just to improve your life. You never go to Jesus just to be fulfilled. You never go to Jesus just to get some healing. You never go to Jesus just to get some forgiveness. You have to first come to Jesus because he's real. You have to first go to Jesus because it's true. Don't believe in the resurrection because it satisfies your deepest needs. You have to believe in the resurrection because it happened. Because it's true. Let the logical argument, let the legal argument, let the personal reality of the resurrection argue with you, argue with your conscience, argue with your heart, argue with your mind and your soul. Let it convince you. Because when you do believe, then it will satisfy you, then it will fulfill you. People come to me all the time, they say, You know, I have a hard time believing, I can't believe this. You see, because this is the kind of God that I want to believe in. This is the kind of God i like to believe in. Look, a God that is the sum of all of your desires, what you want him to be, will never challenge you, will never be able to argue with you, will never be able to convince you of anything, will never be able to disagree with you. You see that? And as a result, that kind of God will never transform you, will never satisfy you, will never fulfill you. Do you know why? Think about this. How can a God that's a product of your own uh, desires ever contradict you when you hate yourself? How can a God that's the sum of your desires, a product of your desires, ever ever challenge your lifestyle? Only a Jesus that is real. Only a Jesus, only a God, uh, because he rose from the dead. Only a Jesus that rose from the dead, who you did not want to believe in, but, like Paul, you had to, Because it's true. When you hate yourself, when you hate yourself, only he can heal you when he says, I love you. Only he can heal you when he says, you're beautiful to me. You're beautiful. A God that you make up will never be able to contradict you, will never be able to challenge your lifestyle, will never be able to disagree with you. Only a real God, only the real Jesus who rose from the dead, will deeply affirm your soul when he says, I love you. Only a real Jesus, when you're running from him, can say, come back. You gotta come back to me. We need that. We need that in our lives. Only a God that says, I love you, will humble you. Only a God that says that will humble you. A God that says, I love you, will make you confident. Humility and confidence, you see that? Verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. What is he saying? I'm humble. He's humble. But then in verse 10, he says, I am what I am. He's confident. How is Paul the least of the apostles on one hand, and yet I am what I am so confident on the other hand? He says this, by the grace of God. The gospel creates an unbreakable, unshakable self-image. In the gospel, we know that we're so sinful Only Jesus could die for us. And yet we're so loved, he was willing and he was glad to die for us. You see that? On the one hand, because we're overwhelmed by our sin, we are the least of all. And yet because we're overwhelmed by God's love, we are confident. We are who we are because of the grace of God. And Paul says, I'm not in my sins because of the resurrection. In verse 10, he says this. He says, His grace to me is not without effect Because of the cost that was paid for me. Do you see that? What does that mean? My favorite preacher, Tim Keller, he uses this illustration. He says this. If you commit a crime and your debt to society is two years in jail, you have to go to jail. You have to do your time, right? When that debt is paid, you're out, right? How do you know that the debt is paid? They set you free. They let you out. Jesus Christ died for your sins, The debt is paid. How do you know that the debt has actually been paid in full? Because he's out. Because he's risen. And so as a result, you're not in your sins because of the resurrection. That's what Paul's Paul's saying. He's saying, his grace to me is not without effect. I'm in union with Christ. Let the text, let the passage, let the Holy Spirit through this text argue with your soul. Challenge you. Let the resurrection give you a lasting faith. That's the meaning of Easter. Now, the second thing we see here is that it gives us a lasting hope. Hope for what? I'm gonna give you four very quick things that the resurrection gives us in terms of a lasting hope. And I love this. First, verses 45 to 52: the resurrection gives us, gives birth to a new you. He says this: we will all be changed. And the dead will be raised imperishable. What does that mean? Right now, you have an earthly body. Right now, your life is like Adam's life. It's broken and it's falling into decay, and it's going to go into death. You take the sum of all of your positive qualities, your youth and your beauty and your passions and your creativity, all your relationships, put them all together. Take your abilities and your mental capacities and your senses and your emotional stability. They're all fading. They're all decaying. Every second that ticks by, your beauty is eroding. You were less beautiful than you were a second ago. Do you see that? But Paul's saying this one day, there will be a new you. And all your sins, and all the misunderstandings, and all the fears, and all our insecurities, all the things that your parents put on you that you've been trying to get rid of all your life, but you don't think you ever will, they're going to be gone. They're going to be stricken. Your body will die. Your body will die. And then, just like a seed in spring, it's going to burst into a flower, but only after the body body splits and falls. Do you see that? There'll be a new you. There'll be a new core in you. And when it's planted in your resurrection body, it's going to burst in you, and then you're going to get the body that expresses everything that you were meant to be, everything that you were designed to be. The true you. Here's a question for you. What does a humbler version of you look like? What does a more confident version of you look like? What does a more selfless version of you look like? What does a wiser version of you look like? We tend to look at newness. We look at newness and we view newness like having a new car or a new house. Or in some ways having a new girlfriend or boyfriend or a new job or we're having more uh, wealth. Those are things that supplement your options and your potential and your joy. But Paul says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a new core and a new you. True options, true potential, true joy. That's what he's talking about. The resurrection gives us a new you. First, second, The resurrection brings meaning in our suffering, meaning to our suffering. Everyone everyone here has lost something, lost something very, very dear to them. Everyone here has lost something that's not sinful to have. It's not sinful to own or possess, but you lost it. But one day, these things will be found, recovered again. And your suffering will be subsumed by the joy that is coming. Death, he says, is swallowed up in victory. He doesn't say you won't die. He says death will be swallowed up in victory. It will be subsumed by the victory. Verses 49 to 56. Look at Jesus. At the resurrection, you see him and he's restored, completely restored. In fact, so much so that his disciples, they didn't recognize him. They lived with him for three years and they couldn't recognize him how did they finally recognize him it was by his scars it was by his wounds he still had his wounds what does that mean it means that our sorrows are still a part of the coming glory and the joy and the victory verse 49 we will bear the likeness of the man from heaven we're going to bear the likeness of jesus and jesus christ we recognized him by his scars you know what that means We're going to bear scars. Our losses will be swallowed up by victory. Our death, even our death, it's through the death that will give birth to the coming joy that will subsume all the misery in our lives. You know what that means? Because of the resurrection, your suffering matters. Your suffering on earth matters. Look at Jesus, completely abandoned by God on earth. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've abandoned me. You've rejected me. You've left me for dead. And yet God was active in that suffering. In fact, it was through that suffering, it was through that death that salvation came into the world. And the Holy Spirit raised Jesus up in three days. And that's what he's doing in our lives. In our suffering, God is raising us up as well to become more like Jesus. That's the meaning of Easter. That's what Easter means. The third thing we see here is that verses 50 to 56, the resurrection promises that the perishable will become imperishable. What that means is in heaven, we're not going to be ghosts. We're not going to be like these ethereal, floating be- be- beings in this dream world, in this dreamlike state. We're not going to be less physical beings. We're actually going to be more physical beings. To be imperishable is to become more physical. You're you're not just going to have a new you. That's what I mean. You're going to have a you that lasts. You're not going to be less solid than you are today. You're actually going to be more solid than you are today. You're going to be more of who you are. It's going to last. It's not going to decay. Earthly bodies, from the moment you're born, you become less and less of a body. That's what happens. Your body goes through this period. It's like senescence. It goes through this period of decay until you finally your body splits and falls to the ground. But Paul's saying here, when you receive your spiritual body, you become more whole, more complete. You become more enabled, more empowered. You'll you'll be able to function in accordance with the way you've been designed in the first place. When you go to a doctor, your doctor comes to you and he says after some time, you need to cut down on fatty acids, Fatty foods, you need to cut down on your sugars. You, you got to cut down on your sugar intake. You got to cut down your cholesterol intake. Why? Why is he saying that? Because what, is he, what he's saying is when you consume these things, these fatty foods and these sugars and the cholesterol, uh, it, you're going to become less and less what you were designed to be. You're going to function poorly, less and less. You're going to decay. But in verse 54, the Apostle Paul writes, You will be clothed with the imperishable. You will be clothed with immortality. You know what that means? Right now, there are things that you can't do. Everyone here has some sort of limitation. It doesn't matter how fast you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how athletic you are. Because you're perishable. Because you're mortal. We all have mortal bodies. But someday you will be able to do more. So much more that it will make your current talents and your current gifts like nothing. If you're a singer, you're going to sing even better. If you're a terrible musician, I'm a terrible musician. One day, you're going to be able to compose. One day, you'll be able to conduct. It's my dream to be able to play Beethoven's uh, Piano Concerto Number 3 my favorite piece, or the Opus 18 String Quartet, my, my second favorite piece. If, you, if you're blind, you know what that means? One day, you'll be able to see Van Gogh's, you'll be able to critique Van Gogh's Starry Night. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you have Aslan, he's the Jesus figure in these novels, in these fiction novels. And he says this, in heaven, you can't want wrong things and it gets even better. In verse 50, he says, the imperishable, they will inherit the kingdom of God. The word kingdom here is really the word for, the Greek word for administration. What he, and it's always used in the context of justice, social justice. So what he means here is that one day God is going to wipe away everything that's wrong with the world. He's going to wipe away poverty, He's going to wipe away oppression, and he's going to build in us a new society that's imperishable. That's what he's doing. And lastly, the resurrection promises the death of death. Verses 54 to 57. Where, O death, is your sting? The word sting here is the Greek word kentron. It doesn't mean uh, the bite You know, ow, the bite of the sting. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the venom that comes in, the poison of the sting, because that's what kills you. In other words, when you die, you don't die because of the pain of the bite, but from the venom, the power of the sting. So when death stings, it's the poison of sin that kills you. That's what Paul's saying here. But because of the resurrection, Paul says, no more. No more venom in the sting. Yes, the bite is going to happen. You're going to feel that sting. You're going to feel the pain. But there's no more power. There's no more power in that death. There's no more power. There's no more venom in that death. Movies today, they portray death as our friend, right? Uh, You got to embrace. You got to make death your friend. Friends, without the resurrection, death is your enemy. You should be afraid of death. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death tears away everything that you are and everything that you have. But Paul says, death has no victory. No more victory. There is no reason to fear death. You know why? Because death has no more poison. There's no more venom in the sting. So you may hurt. You may feel pain. There may be loss. But there's no more power. In fact, it's through that death that new life will be born. Do you see that? What this means is you don't have to have regrets. A lot of us here, we live with regret. No more regrets. You can have hope. You can have power in your life. Now, if you don't believe that, then death and that venom, it's going to course through your life. And that physical decay is going to one day overwhelm you with the spiritual decay that's been happening. And death is going to poison your soul, and your life is going to be frantic. You're going to be filled with regret. You're going to be filled with guilt. You're going to be filled with anxiety and fear because venom's the venom of death, it's coursing through your life. It's why we're afraid. It's why there's a constant frantic search for meaning. That's the decay. That's the meaning of the decay. It kills us even before our actual physical death. But Paul's saying, if you believe in the resurrection, there's no more power in that sting. You can say, hurt me, break me, consume me, and kill me. You will only renew and complete me. Do you see that? How does that happen? Where is the power for this? That's the last point. Look at the cross. Who swallowed the poison? In its entirety. Who swallowed the poison? Jesus Christ, when he was being arrested, he said, Peter, put away your sword. Because Peter, his disciple, took out a sword to defend him. He said, Peter, put it away. You know why? What he's saying is is this. I have not come to bring judgment. I've come to bear it. In other words, I've come to swallow it. All of it. All of it. I've come to drink the cup of God's wrath, not pour it out on other people. In other words, Jesus Christ, he came to swallow the venom. He came to take the poison. How do you bear the likeness of the man in heaven? Behold the man who came to bear the likeness of the man on earth. How do you trust that suffering has meaning? Behold the man who suffered the ultimate suffering, the ultimate meaninglessness. How can you become imperishable? Behold the imperishable who has perished, the one who has died for our sake. How do you become clothed in immortality? Behold Jesus Christ, who clothed himself in mortality. He became a baby. He became vulnerable. He became accessible. He became killable, and he died. Jesus Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ became mortal. Why? So that we could become imperishable. How do you stop the decay? How do you stop the venom of death? How do you not fear death and judgment and guilt and regret and the wrath of God? Look to Jesus Christ who swallowed the venom of death. I've said this before. One of my favorite hymns that the modern church never sings anymore because the music is so kind of off. But the lyrics are so incredible. There's one line in that hymn that says, Jesus Christ drank the dregs. He took of the dregs of God's wrath. What he's saying is that this is what it means. On the cross, as the wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus, Jesus Christ stood there, took it all, and he kept saying, More, more, give it all to me, up until, you know what the dregs are in the tea? The dregs are those last bits of tea that have a little bit of that tea's power in it. When you drink of the dregs, what you're saying is you're sucking in every last ounce, every last bit of that power, of the tea. That hymn says, Jesus Christ drank of the dregs of God's wrath. He said more, more. He was sucking in the wrath of God up until there was nothing left to pour out. He took it all. He sucked that venom until it went dry. Do you see that? When Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've been separated from God. That is hell. Literally experienced hell on the cross. Separation from God. This is the real decay. This is the real death. And I've taken in all the venom. And my body as a result is deteriorating. My soul has been forsaken. I've lost meaning. There is no meaning in this suffering. The venom of death has taken its toll. Why? So that we could have the victory of God. Our suffering has meaning. Jesus Christ was stripped naked and he died on the cross so that there was no shield to soften any blow of God's wrath so that we could be fully clothed in immortality. And through that suffering, Death was swallowed up in victory, in the victory of Christ. And you know, even the grave couldn't hold him. That's the meaning of Easter. The grave couldn't hold him. That's the resurrection. The enemy, death himself, Satan himself, gave Jesus, poured out everything that he had. He used his greatest weapon, death. No one here can escape death. And yet, it was through Jesus' death that true life, eternal life, the imperishable could come. Today, will you behold the true power, the glory, the beauty of lives that are raised with Jesus? Because the Apostle Paul says that when Jesus died, we died with him. We're in union with him. And when he raised, he was the firstfruits of, We will be raised with him. Behold the resurrection of Jesus Christ, glorified. The glory of our risen king. The beauty of our king who gives us a lasting faith, a lasting hope, and the power to live that out. That's the glory of Easter. That's the meaning of Easter. Let's pray together.